meeting reading is from Genesis uh, chapter 12 and the first nine verses, which you can find on page 13 in the Pew Bibles or on your notice sheet. So Genesis 12. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired at Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moreh at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on towards the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued towards the Negev. The second reading is Genesis chapter 23, which is on your service sheets, but if you want to follow it in the church Bibles, it's on page 23. Sarah lived to be 127 years old. She died at Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went to mourn for Sarah and to weep over her. Then Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choices of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. Then Abraham rose and bowed down before the people of the land, the Hittites. He said to them, If you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, son of Zohar, on my behalf, so that he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him and is at the end of his field. Ask him to sell it to me for the full price as a burial site among you. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead." Again Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in their hearing, Listen to me, if you will. I will pay the price of the field, 
accept it from me so that I can bury my dead there. Ephron replied to Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver, but what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. So Ephron's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, both the field and the cave in it, and all the trees within the borders of the land, was legally made over to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Afterwards, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah, near Mamre, which is at Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were legally made over to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Thank you very much, Mandy, for reading. Rest in peace is a common sentiment at death. It can become, come up, rest in peace, on sympathy cards that are received, in prayers that are said, in eulogies and memorial poems that are read out at funerals, on headstones and on caskets, rest in peace. Sometimes those words, rest in peace, are spoken with understanding and with specific Christian understanding uh, of what they entail. Peace via faith in Jesus, despite death. But very often, probably much more widely, they're spoken without such understanding and without that sort of Christian, explicitly Christian context. In that case, those words, rest in peace, can just become a slightly kind of warm, fuzzy phrase at death. You know, peace, that's quite a nice idea. We like peace. Resting, that's a much more palatable idea than death, the starkness of death. And so that phrase, rest in peace, can very easily therefore become a kind of secular sop, a convenient distraction in some ways, from the real issues that are at hand. After all, in the case of relatives who weren't Christians or friends who weren't Christians, who wants to confront the the likelihood that the deceased is facing God's just judgment when instead we can just exchange phrases like rest in peace and write that on a headstone? That obviously begs the question for us as Christians, using the phrase with understanding, are those who are hearing it from us, receiving it from us, doing so with understanding as well, or simply receiving it as a warm fuzzy? Thankfully, we can know, we do know, that there is real peace available, actual peace, and today's passage points us towards the actual resting in peace we can enjoy in Christ. We're picking up our series in Genesis. Would you believe there's a series in Genesis we have been doing as a church uh, no less than two years after stopping it? So we got to Genesis chapter 22 in the evening services back in March 2021, if you can remember that far back. And now two years later, we are jumping into Genesis chapter 23 as though nothing has happened in the between times. Um, it's good to chop and change our series a little bit to give ourselves some variety of biblical literature. But I thought 
given it has been two years, I'm not going to rely on your memories, certainly not my own memory of what happened all those years ago. So I'm going to give us a bit of context as, as to what we're looking at here in chapter 23. So Genesis is a book in 10 parts. Uh, each of those 10 parts beginning, uh, these are the generations of, whether it's the heavens and the earth, or Adam, or Noah, or the sons of Noah. And we're currently here in chapter 23 in part 6 of 10 in Genesis. That is, the generations of Terah, which runs from chapter 12 through to chapter 25. So we're quite, quite near the end of part 6, actually, of Genesis. Um, most of part 6, the generations of Terah, is the account of Abraham, the son of Terah. The whole question of Genesis, parts you know, 2 through 10, really, is the question of how do we get back to Eden? How do we get back to that perfect place with God where we start off? It all went wrong in part one, and the subsequent parts, including this part six, is how do we get back there? Uh, Various things have been tried by this stage that we're up to in chapter 23, so we ask the question, is it enough to let the children learn from the parents' mistake? Uh, No, Cain, in fact, did even worse than his father. Is it enough to take the most righteous man living on earth and wipe out everybody else, start again with his family? No, it's obviously not, because Noah himself sinned as well. Is it enough to build our own way back to a perfect place with God? No, because Babel didn't work out. That only showed people's foolishness and pride rather than their righteousness. None of those human options for getting back to Eden worked. None of those people, none of those structures. The only option left by the time we got to part six of Genesis was for God himself to bring us back to be with him. And that started, that big project that would go on for the rest of the Bible started with promises of blessing to Abraham, which we've briefly reviewed again. Uh, I think Joe read out for us chapter 12 um, earlier on, and I'm grateful to Monica who planned this service for having uh, incorporated that reminder of those promises to Abraham, which began part six of Genesis. Promises to Abraham of land and of people and of blessing, being in God's land, God's people, with God's blessing. Those were promises made to him through which all people would one day be blessed again and live under God's blessing. Now, much of part six of Genesis, much of that, chapters 12 to 25, has been more memorable events than the one we're looking at. So I don't think many of us would put our hands up when asked about the life of Abraham and think, oh yes, the particular moment I remember about that is him burying his wife. Uh, Most of us would point to things like uh, the promises of a son, the wrestling with the question of, uh, is my son just going to be Ishmael, uh, the son of Hagar? Um, Then the wonderful news of uh, the arrival of a son from Sarah, Isaac, chapter 21, And then, of course, the terrible events in chapter 22, and it looked like Abraham was going to have to sacrifice this long-waited-for son. But then, wonderfully, God provided a substitute, a ram, to sacrifice instead. Those kind of events much more dominate our thoughtscape of Abraham. So here in chapter 23, we're at the end, really, of the account of Abraham. And we can see things are wrapping up because it begins with a death. Sarah lived to be 127 years old, but verse 2, she died at Kiriath Abra, Abra, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. 
Now, Sarah's death brings rather painfully to light just how few of the promises that God made had been realized at this stage of Abraham's life. He was 10 years older than Sarah, so she died at 127. At this point, he's 137, so he's really getting on, and he's facing his own end. And I'm sure her death um, really clarified the fact, okay, well, wonderfully, Isaac has come. That at least guarantees the continuance of my family. That promise of a great people coming from me, a great family, uh, is actually a realistic possibility with an heir in the form of Isaac. But what about the great blessing that God has promised? What about the land that we're going to have? Where's that? And that's particularly brought into sharp focus by the question of what do we do with Sarah's body? Where do we bury it? If I had the land that God had promised, I'd bury it there. But at the moment, I'm still a sojourner, a traveler, uh, wandering about and staying in a land that is not my own. We're very fortunate here in this village, in Little Shelford, in this church, to have an open churchyard. Uh, Increasingly few parish churches have open churchyards these days. Uh, We're wonderfully, we have a decent amount of space left at the back of the north building for ongoing burials, future interments. Uh, Other villages have either closed or in the process of closing their churchyards, but ours is very much open. In other places, you might have to fight for a plot or to fight to reserve plots uh, that you might be buried in one day. And many parochial church councils have to make difficult decisions about their policy, about allowing or not allowing the reservation of burial plots, allowing or not allowing descendants of those who are buried in the churchyard who don't actually live in the parish to get buried there, and so on and so forth. Now, Abraham, back in uh, however long ago it was in Hebron, had no parish church in which he had a right to get buried in, sadly. He couldn't go and knock on the door and say, I'd like a a bit of space at the back of the north building, please, to put Sarah in. Because this wasn't his country. It was the Hittites' country, which is one group of the Canaanites who are living there. The painful reality was that this land that God had promised Abraham was not yet his, and he had no right to bury anybody there. But Abraham needed to bury Sarah somewhere. And so we get the drama of this chapter, the drama of finding a plot for his wife. So he takes action. Verse 3. Abraham rose from beside his dead wife and spoke to the Hittites. He said, I am a foreigner and a stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site here so that I can bury my dead. Under normal circumstances, the Hittites might say back to him, absolutely no way. A camping visit with your camels and your caravans for a few years, that's okay. Passing through, that's fine. But the burial of a family member, signifying permanence, this is your home, this is where you're going to come back to to mourn them, absolutely no way. You can't bury her here. But the first bit of good news is that the Hittites, actually, they were okay with the idea of of Sarah being buried there, as we see in verse 5. The Hittites replied to Abraham, Sir, listen to us. You are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our tombs. None of us will refuse you his tomb for burying your dead. 
It's quite a big claim that the Hittite elders were making there. None of us will refuse you. Uh, Abraham's talking here with the, the elders of the city of Hebron in the gates, with place of doing business and making deals. And they're speaking on behalf of the, the whole tribe and saying, none of, none of us will say no to you having his choicest tomb. So Abraham puts that big claim to the test and nominates a particular cave that he had his eye on. Verse 7, Abraham rose and bowed down very politely before the people of the land, the Hittites, and he said to them, if you are willing to let me bury my dead, then listen to me and intercede with Ephron, the son of Zohar, on my behalf, so that he will sell me the cave of Machpelah, which belongs to him. Maybe he's had his eye on that particular plot for a little while. Doubtless he came to the Hittites that day with that one particularly on his heart. But we already see a little bit of background tension, despite the apparent willingness of the Hittites to work with Abraham. Back in verse 4, Abraham had said, sell me property to bury Sarah in. And then in verse 6, the Hittites had said back to him, Bury her in any plot you want, without reference to that transaction of buying and selling. And then again, Abraham emphasizes the selling in verse 9. Sell me the cave of Machpelah. He really wants to pay the money in exchange for this land. He was no doubt relieved that the Hittites were very willing to negotiate, to talk about this issue, rather than just saying, no way, you're not going to bury your wife among us but no doubt also anxious that they would sell him the land rather than simply give it to him. Why is that? Well, a sale was definitive. It was harder to renege on a transaction involving land if there had been an exchange of goods, if there had been consideration given, money given for the land rather than just having it handed over. A simple gift might easily be misconstrued, misunderstood. It might be easier for future Hittites, however however kind and generous these present generation of Hittites were, for future uh, descendants to claim that Abraham was only given a license to the land. He was only given a temporary permission of burial rather than a permanent right of ownership. They might dispute the idea that they were willing to actually permanently alienate some of their own tribe's lands to this foreigner if there had been no payment of money for it. And that's especially a likely sort of situation of confusion in a society with less developed rules of property ownership and transaction. So Abraham really wanted certainty, because this is a big deal, both burying his wife, but also preparing a plot for him in the future to be buried, and for his own descendants likewise to be buried with him. He wants a place that those remains will be undisturbed in the future, where they really can rest in peace, as it were. And so he needs to have lands that he owns following a transaction of money. And more than simply a bit of land for his family, if he is successful at this negotiation in buying some land, in acquiring legal ownership of a bit of land uh, in Canaan, that will then be the first bit of land that realizes this promise that God is making that he will give this land to Abraham and his descendants. The beginning 
of the fulfilment of that promise of the land. So what of that little cave of Machpelah that Abraham had his eye on, that he had his mind set on as he came to this negotiation at the gate of Hebron? And what of Ephron, who owned it? That's not Ephron the film star, but Ephron the Hittite. What would he make of this uh, proposal that he hand over the cave? Well, it turns out that Ephron the Hittite was in the crowd at the city gate, as we see in verse 10. Ephron the Hittite was sitting among his people, and he replied to Abraham in the hearing of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of his city. No, my lord, he said, listen to me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. I give it to you in the presence of my people. Bury your dead. So that's not a no, I will not part with that land. No, you may not bury your wife there. No, you may not have it. But a no, I will not sell it to you. I want to give it to you. Uh, I want you to take it as quickly as possible and, and bury your wife there. I insist on gifting this bit of land to you. But again, as with the wider negotiation with the other Hittites, that's a bit of a mixed blessing for Abraham. Great that burial was a real possibility in this much-desired, sought-after cave of Machpelah. But bad, that legal title to it was possibly elusive if Ephron was not willing to actually accept cash for it. Now, you might think to yourself, well, if buying this pit of land was so important to Abraham, why didn't he just say so to the Hittites, say so to Ephron? Why didn't he just explain to them the situation and point out why he needed certainty about this bit of land and how he wanted to achieve it? If they were genuinely so generous, surely they would understand his concerns and accept them and just take money from him. It's possible that Abraham didn't do that because he was worried about a kind of false generosity on the part of the Hittites, who knew they had to be very hospitable uh, culturally to strangers, but actually didn't really want to be that hospitable. And actually they were just being a bit shrewd with him and saying, sure, have a license to bury your dead here, but we don't really want to sell you land. We don't want to give you perpetuity ownership over it. Or it's possible that Abraham didn't set out his case openly to them because he thought they wouldn't understand, or they might even be offended that he thought it was possible in the future that their descendants would renege on this generosity to him and to his descendants, that they might be less benevolent in the future if other circumstances arose. Well, either way, it doesn't matter which of those ways in which Abraham decided not to explain himself. Either way, he was determined not to rely simply on the kindness of strangers. And once again, he offered consideration, cash, for this land in verse 12. Again, Abraham bowed down before the people of the land And he said to Ephron in their hearing, listen to me, if you will, I will pay the price of the field, accept it from me so that I can bury my dead there. He bowed down, he showed total dependence on the goodwill of his uh, co-locutors. He's begging them for permission to buy this land, showing them his Uh, absolute abject need for them to sell them his land. 
please, he said to them, accept payment so that I can bury my wife there. That is in, as in, I can't bury her here if you don't sell it to me. I can't bury her somewhere that I can't definitively show is mine. And as I say, what's at stake here is not simply an old man's dying wish, but rather also the promise of God to Abraham that he will inherit the promised land. Will Abraham see the beginning of that fulfillment or not? Will he be able to bury his wife and his, the rest of his family in this land he's been promised? Or will he have to take her body and take their bodies back to Haran or back to Ur, where he came from? What will Ephron say? Well, his final uh, take, verse 14, Ephron answered Abraham, Listen to me, my lord. The land is worth 400 shekels of silver. But what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Final word from Ephron there, again, studied ambiguity. He did name a sale price. He he did say this land is worth about 400 shekels. That's, in our money, about three and a half thousand pounds based on current value of silver. But he's still also arguably just trying to gift it in saying, what is that between you and me? It doesn't matter. Forget about it. Just let me give it to you. Nonetheless, Abraham seized his opportunity. He heard a price and he got the money out. Without missing a beat, he took action and it was enough for the negotiation. No haggling about the price, no risking Ephron pulling out and saying, actually, I really don't want to sell you this. I only want to gift it to you. Verse 16, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms and weighed out for him the price he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, 400 shekels of silver, according to the weight current among the merchants. Actually, the, the NIV translation here slightly glosses the original and I think actually slightly suffocates the dramatic ambiguity that's going on in the text. Uh, a better translation really is, uh, rather than saying um, Abraham agreed to Ephron's terms, Abraham listened to what Ephron said. Uh, there's kind of a, a decision being made by the NIV translators here that Ephron was actually offering terms rather than kind of just leaving it ambiguous as to whether he was offering terms of sale or simply saying how much the land is worth and still trying to actually gift it to Abraham. Anyway, Abraham counted out the silver piece by piece at the city gate and handed it over to Ephron. And wonderfully, no objection. Verse 17 Ephron's field in Machpelah, near Mamre, both the field and the cave that came with it, and all the trees within the border of the field, was legally made over to Abraham as his property in the presence of all the Hittites who had come to the gate of the city. Resolution, legally made over to Abraham after all of that slightly anxious to and fro, those questionable motives of the parties involved in the negotiation. And all the Hittites at the city gate saw what had happened, all the elders of the city. They witnessed this handing over of the 400 pieces of silver in exchange for the land, and there was no going back. Incontrovertible, no refunds. What wonderful personal relief for Abraham to have legal title to that piece of land 
a toehold for him of possession of that land that God had promised him so many years ago that would be his and his descendants forever. Vindication of God's promise. He'd already begun to vindicate that promise with the blessing of people, with the coming of the son, Isaac. And now Abraham could see the beginning of the fulfillment of that promise of the blessing of land with the cave of Machpelah, little tiny bits of this land that was promised, legally made over to him. And so Sarah, wonderfully, could be laid to rest in peace. Verse 19, afterwards, Abraham buried his wife Sarah in the cave in the field of Machpelah near Mamre, which is at Hebron in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave in it were legally made over to Abraham by the Hittites as a burial site. Of course, there was much more to God's promise to Abraham than what he began to see fulfilled here. But still, to see this little bit of it fulfilled, the beginning of that great family, the beginning of that ownership of the land, was a a foretaste of what was to come in centuries in the future when the the fullness of that fulfillment would come. And so God showed both his faithfulness to his promise and also his kindness in showing Abraham some of this fulfillment. Faithfulness in that this journey into the promised land was not in vain, coming from Ur, coming from uh, all of those places he travelled from to be here. He could stay. He could bury his wife here. He could die here and be buried here himself and have security that his descendants would be buried in the same place. And God's kindness to him, like Moses, just glimpsing the promised land from Mount Nebo. Abraham, likewise, given a little glimpse of the promise to come in this title to the land, this legal ownership of the cave of Machpelah. The same wonderful faithfulness and kindness of God is still shown to us as it was to Abraham so many thousands of years ago. Just as Abraham had a little glimpse of that future fulfillment in that title deed to a little tiny bit of land, so we have a little glimpse of future promise fulfillment, not in a a title to a bit of land, not in a title to a, a burial plot behind the north building, but in the resurrected Lord Jesus, the first fruits of those who are coming back from the dead. The land of Israel, that was a shadow, even when it had been completely given over to the descendants of Abraham, just a shadow of the true land of the people of God that is coming. That blessed land that we've sung of already earlier in our service, a place where the streets shine with the glory of the Lamb. We can go there. We can live there in a place beyond time. We who trust in the Lord Jesus will inherit that new creation when he comes to reign. But we can see a foretaste of that future kingdom in the resurrected Lord Jesus, upon whom we meditate this Easter season. He is an advanced copy of the resurrection bodies which we will have to inhabit that kingdom. And that is how Christians can rest in peace. 
Um, Sarah might have been able to rest in peace because of that ownership, that bit of land in Machpelah. We can have lasting rest in peace because we have the evidence of the Lord Jesus' promise in his resurrection. Little Shelford churchyard here might fill up before our time. There might not be any spots left when it's our time to go six feet under. We might end up being cremated, for all we know. Our physical remains may be blown to the wind. But, you know, whatever happens to us in our mortal bodies in the days of time, nonetheless, we can have assurance that we will share in Jesus' glory in the day of eternity. And Jesus' resurrection is our guarantee of that. In fact, he's our title deed, like Abraham had a title deed to the cave. That cave was legally made over, verse 17, legally made over to Abraham after that extended negotiation with the Hittites and Ephron. Likewise, our title to that kingdom is legally made over to the king and to those who are in him by faith. So if the devil goads us with doubt about that future inheritance, is your future there really secure? We can wave that title deed in his face. Jesus Christ, risen for my justification, born again, I am, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through him, I will be raised imperishable. New heavens and new earth, legally made over to us through him. Now we can still visit the cave of Machpelah today. You can go to Hebron in the West Bank in Israel and see the tomb of the patriarchs. Uh, An archaeological investigation recently gave further evidence that it it really is the actual site um, of that cave, uh, the place they call the Cave of the Patriarchs. Um, The Tel nearby, Tel Rumeda, uh, is identified as the ancient um, old city of Hebron, only about 200 metres away from the current centre of the modern city of Hebron. But it's a contested place, as many places in the West Bank are. Uh, the tomb of the patriarchs is half a mosque and half a synagogue and there's always fights there 1968, 47 Jews were killed by a hand grenade Uh, 1980, another scuffle, 6 dead, 17 wounded by Arab gunfire on the other side, 1994, an Israeli settler just opened fire on an Islamic day of prayer killed 29 with 125 further wounded And there's always scuffles and low-level disturbances around that particular site. What terrible irony, what terrible irony that that tomb of the patriarchs, where Sarah hoped to rest in peace, is now shaken by almost daily disturbance. Below, the patriarchs may have a sort of rest in peace, but above, their spiritual descendants are not RIP in that sense, but restive in punch-ups, you could say, RIP, above. Well, for us, thinking about that tomb, thinking about that cave, thinking about the legal ownership that Abraham got of it, 
That's a token for us of God's faithfulness and kindness. He delivered on his promises to Abraham. And God will deliver again on his greater promises to us. That's the guarantee it speaks to us. A coming kingdom which is very real, very physical, where tears and crying and death are no more. The title deed for that has been transferred legally made over for those in Christ. Let's pray and give thanks. We thank you, our loving Heavenly Father, for your plans and your promises. Often when we think of them, we cry out with the Apostle, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are your judgments. How inscrutable your ways. Who could teach you Who could you consult? We praise you, Heavenly Father, for your dealings with Abraham, for the start of that remaking work which you did through him and his family. We thank you for bringing us into that family and so giving us that legal title to that promised new creation. Amen.